0: we have the rules of Yerusha, of inheritance we have the story of the daughters of Tzlafchad, their father Tzlafchad died he had no sons so his daughters petitioned Moshe they said, we want to inherit our father uh, since, since, since he has no sons Moshe consulted Hashem Hashem said, they are right Cain Venos Tzlafchad Dovros they are correct you should give them the estate of their father, Tzlafchad. And then the then Hashem set forth the general system of Yerusha, a man dies, leaves no sons, then his estate passes to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you give it to his brother. Actually, his father, Chazal explained, go before the brother, but the means if the if he has, uh, if his father, if his father is 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 already deceased, then you give it to his brother. If he has no 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 surviving brothers, then you give the irusha lache to his father's brothers. And then, generally, if he if his father has no brothers, then the Pasik leaves us with a general rule. Unisat temes nachloso love. You then give the estate, give the irusha to his closest relative. Mishpachto. The Yara and he and and that closest relative will inherit the Yerusha. This, these are the laws of Yerusha. The P'sukim don't set forth uh, the the halachas in all in all details. The the Gemara fills out, fills in some of the gaps. Yes, the 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 Gemara fills in some of the gaps of the of the Yerusha. The basic rule is sons go before daughters. Even Chazal point out. Even Benno Stolfska understood that. Even they said. We want to inherit because our father has no sons. They understood that, of course, if our father had sons, they would, the sons would inherit, we would not. But since he has no sons, we want to inherit, Hashem agreed. So first sons, then daughters. If there are, the truth is, even before the daughters, if the sons have died but have left descendants, then those descendants go before the daughters. So, for example, a man has a son and a daughter, and each of them has children, and the son is dead, even though the daughter is still alive. The son's heirs will inherit the the grandfa- their grandfather entirely. They'll get all of his money, and the daughter and her family won't get anything because sons go before daughters, and therefore all the descendants of the sons go before the daughters. This is a general rule. Kod anyone anyone who has anyone who has uh, anyone who precedes someone else in Akhla, so all the all the, all the all the preceding persons Heirs also have precedence over the next in line, so just like the son goes before the daughter, all the sons' heirs all go before the daughter, but if there's no son and no surviving son and no surviving descendants of a son, either there was no son to begin with, or the son died and left no children, or the son had children but they all died, then the daughter will inherit. If there are no daughters... Then we apply the next rule. The, the, the general rule is that when, when when you exhaust all the descendants of someone, then you pass one generation up to his parents. So if the, if the mace, after you exhaust all his children, he has no surviving sons or daughters or grandsons or anything, the next in line is his, is his parents, his father. Father, not mother. We'll discuss that soon. So the father is next in line. If the father is dead, already dead, then we apply the previous rule that we look for all the descendants of the father, meaning all the all the brothers of the mace and nephews of the mace, we look for any surviving descendants of the father. If the father has no surviving descendants, we go one generation up to the grandfather. If he's not alive, then we go down to all the grandfather's descendants, which are uncles of the of the mace and so on. If there is no surviving, no surviving descendant of the grandfather, we go up to the great-grandfather. If he's not around, we then go down to all the descendants of the great-grandfather, which is cousins and great-uncles and so on. And that's basically how the system works. So we, 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 we first look to male, heir, male descendants. If there are no surviving male descendants, we go to female descendants. Then if there are none, we go up one generation. If, then we go down generations. E, e, on each level, sons go before daughters. And on each level, the descendants go before ancestors, and so on and so forth. That is how Yerusha works. There, is a, there are a number of important differences with Yerusha of the Torah and uh, modern modern law. modern law will say that different levels of, he- of heirs will all inherit. If there are sons and daughters and uncles, they may all get something according to typical state laws. Some get more, some get less. The Torah doesn't have any notion like that. The Torah says at any level, the only ones who inherit are the closest living heirs. So if it's sons and the sons get everything and the daughters get nothing, If there are no sons, the daughters get everything, and the father, uncles get nothing. If there are no sons or daughters, the father gets everything, the uncles and cousins get nothing. If there's no father, then the brothers get everything, nephews and uncles get nothing, and so on. So in in halacha, it's basically all or nothing. The closest relatives are are the ones who get everything. If there are multiple closest relatives, multiple sons, or multiple daughters multiple people on the same level, then they split it equally. But, but, the, the, but, but it's winner-take-all. The closest relatives get everything, and the relatives who are farther in relation get nothing. That's the basic system of Yerusha, the, that, that it goes by relatives, men before women, closer relatives before more distant relatives, now, there is nothing in the, in, in the pesukim, nothing explicit in the pesukim about spouses. All the relatives here are mishpachto, are familial relatives, blood relatives. There is nothing in the parsha explicitly about spouses. Nevertheless, this is a halacha psuka, unanimously accepted in Chazal, that a husband inherits his wife. A wife does not inherit her husband. This is in the Mishnah, in the first Mishnah in Perik Perikesh is the Perik in Baba Bastra that discusses the laws of inheritance. The rules are all set forth. So the Mishnah reiterates that the rule is a husband inherits a wife. A wife does not inherit a husband. Where on earth does this come from that a husband inherits his wife? There is nothing about that in the Psukim. So although, as we mentioned, all the Chachamim agree that that is the Halacha, that a husband inherits his wife, there is... There are a number of different derivations, drashas, and so on, given for this by various tanaim in Gemaras in medrashim. There are at least three or four different explanations for how we arrive at this halacha that a husband inherits his wife. Some chachamim darshan it from the pasuk that we read. Some chachamim darshan that that refers somehow the drasha to a wife. How do, we get to, how do we get there? So the Marim Bavastra says on the aforementioned Mishnah, Tana Rabanan She'ero Zu Ishto. She'ero, as elsewhere in the Torah, sometimes refers to a wife. Melamed Shabal Yereshes Ishto. That we see from here that a husband inherits his wife. Yachalaf, he tirashenu, you might think it's symmetric. If he inherits her, she should inherit him. Talmud Lomar, V'yarash Osa, Yarash Osa, V'ein He Yereshes Oso. It is not symmetric. A husband inherits a wife. A wife does not inherit a husband. That, it doesn't say he inherits, uh, it doesn't say that the, he inherits She'ero, it says that, it says that the, if anything, it says that a wife should inherit the husband. It says, the Pasuk says, it, the Pasuk says that Give his Nachla to the share. Share is a wife. It sounds like, on the contrary, that a wife inherits and not the husband. So how do you read the Pasuk like that? So Rava says, so, 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 so Abayah proposes instead that you, 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 you rearrange the words of the Pasuk. love, and You rearrange the words to, for it to read he inherits her. Rava says, how can you do that? You can use a knife to just dissect the Pasuk and rearrange the words. So Rava says, you do something a little more subtle, you also have to change the words a little bit, but you say, Unisatem es nachlas lo. instead of rearranging all the words, you just say that, uh, you take off the Vav of Nachlas, and put it, uh, and put it later in the Pasuk, to get Nachlas sheiro Lo, that's called Garden of and Vedarshan, that's another form of drasha, so one way or another, the, the Gemara brings various versions of this drasha, that you can somehow, you read sheiro Zuishto, and you somehow manage to read the Pasuk, that it means he inherits his She'er, but his She'er does not inherit him. The Gemara brings another Braisa, that it says, the Yarash Osa, that it says he inherits it, or her. So Osa in Hebrew is a little bit of an ambiguous word. In English, we have genders. So we have him and her are for people, and it is for non-gendered things like tables, and inheritances, and spaceships, and so on. But in Hebrew, Osa could either mean her, or it can mean it. So the simple reading of the Pasuk is Osa is referring to Nahla. The Pasuk says, You give the Vinasatemis Nachla so Lishayra Karavaylov, give his Nachla the deceased Nachla to Shayra Karavaylov, the Yarash Osa, and he shall inherit it, Osa, it, the Nachla. But, but the, the Brisa brings a drasha that Osa means her, Osa refers to gender, and that uh, Osa is being used in the sense of gender. And Rabbi Kiva Darshans, He inherits her. Who's her? His wife. So Rabbi Kiva says, we see Baal is Ishto. Rabbi Yishmael says, Eino I have a third drasha. I have a third source for the the rule that a husband inherits his wife. So far we've had two sources. One of them is from the word She'ero, which means Ishto, and we somehow rearrange the Pasuk to mean he inherits She'ero. The second drasha is Rabbi Kiva's drasha of Yarash Osa. Osa means her, that he inherits her. Neither of those are explicit, but those are the first two drashas. Rabbi Ishmael has a third drasha, not from this pasuk at all, from a later pasuk at the end of at the end of Chumash Dvar. The pasuk says that we find a concern in the end of the Chumesh, the end of Chumesh from There was a concern that if people, if people, if, if, if people would inherit Nahla and then women would get married and to people from another shevet, then the Nahla might pass out of the first shevet to the new shevet, the shevet of the husband. So, the Torah gave a commandment, specifically for that generation, not Lederos, but specifically for the Dar HaMidbar, the, the Torah gave a tzivoy, v'chol bas yoreshes nakhla, any woman, any daughter who inherits, so there was a, a tzivoi mimatos b'nei Yisrael, any girl who inherits nachla from any of the shvatim of the b'nei Yisrael, la'echon mishpachas, she, she was required to get married to someone from her sheveth, someone from her family, in order to keep the nachla within the sheveth. So, the Torah is clearly telling us that if she gets married to someone outside the Shevet, there was a concern that the Nachla might pass outside the Shevet. How would that happen? So, the, so the Rabbi Shemal says, We're talking about the Hasabas the, Nachla, the redirection of the Nachla away from a Shevet by inheritance of the husband. If she marries someone from another, from another tribe, he'll inherit her if she dies, and then the Nachla will pass out of her Shevet to her husband's Shevet. So, you see, implicitly, the Torah is assuming that a husband inherits his wife. This is not entirely compelling, because we could, we could always, the, the Gemara points out, you have to assume that this is referring to HaSabbat HaBal, transfer via the husband. You could also learn that it's referring to HaSabbat HaBen. Let's say a woman from Shevet Yehuda marries a man from Shevet Benyamin. Even if he does not inherit her, but if they have a child together, that child is considered a Benjaminite, because the Yichus of the Shevet follows the, follows the father. So, if if she and her husband die, and, and her son inherits her, then again, the Nachla will have left Sheva Yehuda to Binyamin. So, it's not absolutely necessary to assume that we're talking about HaSaba Sabal, it could be HaSaba Sabain, but Rabbi Shmuel understands we're talking about HaSaba Sabal, we're talking about the transfer of Nachla via the marriage, via the inheritance of the husband, and therefore, according to Rabbi Shmuel, that's where we see the rule that a husband inherits his wife. We find a Fourth drasha for the for a fourth derivation for the idea that a that a husband inherits his wife. In, in, in there, there are versions of this of this discussion of Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Yishmael in various midrashim, in both the Sifrei as well as the Sifri Zuta. So in the Sifrei, the drasha is uh, that Machlokas Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Yishmael is more or less as we have in the Bavli. Rabbi Kiva says drasha number two. The drasha is from the phrase "vi'arash osa," he inherits her, which means his wife. Rabbi Shmuel says "einot and he refers to the pasuk in Paraklamet Vav, "v'chol bas is nachla." It says there's a sabbath nachla that her husband will inherit. And then uh, the, the, the midrash goes on and it gives other examples of actual cases in Tanakh, and Sefer Yeshua and in Divrei Hayamim where we find actual cases, at least the way Chazal understood the Psukim, that nachla indeed passed uh, out of the Shevet, but, but based on the fact that women married men from other, from other Shvatim, and the husbands inherited. This, so that, so that that's, that's pretty much the same as the Bavli. But in the Sifri Zuta, we find a fourth drasha. Sifri Zuta, after it brings the drasha of the Yarashosa, it brings Reb Yudam and, and So So far we had the drasha of the Stambrace and the Bavli, Rabbi Yishmal, Rabbi Kiva. Now we have Reb Yudam and Becerra. Bidam and says, it is a Kalvachomer. I don't need a, a text-based Russia, I have a Kalvachomer. The halacha is, a man is Yeresh's mother. A man or a woman is Yeresh's mother. If a woman dies and there's no husband, then her sons are yarish. If she has no sons, her daughters will be Yarshas. So a man is Yeresh's mother. And even though a man doesn't have other financial rights to his mother's property... For example, he doesn't get her, her, her earnings if she works. He, obviously, the son is not entitled to his mother's labor. Nevertheless, he's entitled to inherit her. When, so when it comes to a wife, a wife, the husband, does have other conjugal rights again, uh, uh, to his wife's property. If she works, he gets her property. Masiyadayim. That's, that, that's a halacha we find all over Chazal. A husband is in the Masiyadayim, in the fruits of the labor of his wife. So Kavachomri should be yerish if a mother who, who the son does not get Maseyadayim, he gets to be Yerisha. A wife, where the husband does get Maseyadayim, certainly should be Yerisha. Now, this is actually, as the Mepharshan point out, this is actually a somewhat uh, problematic argument, because this halacha that a husband gets Maseyadayim of his wife, is that Dereis or a drabanan? It's actually a big machlokas, and uh, it, it, it's, a, it, it, it's actually the Pashas, it's drabanan doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that a husband gets his wife's Daim. So, we pass, and that's Drabana. So, some suggest that that Rehudim and actually held it was Daraissa. He actually held that the... He actually held that the... that the Masyidaim is Daraissa. Others say that the whole Kavachomer was only meant on a drabanan level, and Rehudim only meant... That a he held that a husband is only only inherits his wife Midrabanan, in which case his kalvachomer is valid. And that actually takes us to a, a an additional step of this discussion: is Yerusha Sabal deraisu or Before we go there, I just want to make one point that I always uh, I, I always like to make in this context. The Riddim of mentions that a husband gets the ma'aser of his wife. People hear that, sometimes they feel that that's uh, not very woman-friendly, that's uh, patriarchal, we're taking away a woman's right to keep her own earnings. The halacha actually is, nothing could be farther from the truth. This is actually a halacha that is very favorable toward women. The way we Paskin is that Chazal established an exchange where the woman turns over her maiseyidaim and Midrabanan, as we said, according to the Iker it's drabanan, Maybe we do hold the is it's drabanan. The woman turns over her Masih to her husband, in exchange for which the husband is obligated to maintain her. Food, clothing, he has to, he has to maintain her with food and clothing. We're in those are both drabanan. We're in that his obligation to her to maintain her is drabanan, her obligation to turn over her Masih to him is drabanan, and Chazal set both of them up, one corresponding to the other. Which was the primary one? So it's a shail of the Gemara, but we ask that the Iker Takana of Chazal, the primary concern of Chazal, is to protect her, to ensure that she should, be, she should have a reliable, dependable source of maintenance. So the Iker Takana was that he's chayev to maintain her, to give her Mizonos and ksus and dira and so on. In exchange for that, Chazal said he's entitled to her maiseyadayim. So he has to provide for her, in exchange for which he's entitled to her income. Because we pass in that this is a takana for her benefit, she is in the driver's seat. She has the right to say, I accept this takana, I will turn over my C to you in exchange for stability and maintenance. Or she can say, No thank you. I would rather I would rather be independent. I would rather keep my own earnings and provide for myself. It is entirely up to her. So it's actually a privilege she has. If she, if she is happy with her salary, if she's uh, comfortable, she makes more than she needs for maintenance, she can say, no thank you, I'll keep, my, I'll keep all my earnings and I'll maintain myself. If she does not make enough money or, or if her income is not stable and reliable, she can say, I, I, I want guaranteed maintenance from you in exchange for which I'll turn over whatever meager, uneven income that I get. It's up to, it's up to you, it's up to her, we pass it. So actually, it's, the halacha is very much in favor of women. There's actually a machlokis whether she has the right to go back and forth. Let's say one week she knows she has uh, a lot of customers. She knows it's usually a good week. So can she say this week I'll keep my earnings because I have a lot of them and, you, and, and I don't need you to provide for me? Next week I know it's a slow season, so next week uh, I'll, I'll turn over my limited or nonexistent earnings to you and you'll, and you'll maintain me. Does she have the right to go back and forth like that? Some posts can say yes. Some posts can say she can do that. She can go, I don't know, day by day, week by week, month by month. She can say whenever she wants. I don't know if she can do it retroactively, but she may have to decide in advance. But at least in advance, she can say, for, for this period I want this arrangement, for the next period I don't want this arrangement. Other posts can say that's not fair, that that would be giving her too much uh, advantage. But be that as it may, the point is, it's, it's important to understand the fact that she turns over Masi Diane to him is entirely at her discretion. She has the right to do that in exchange for guaranteed maintenance, or if she prefers, she can keep it and maintain herself. So, so far we've seen four possible drushes for Yerusha Sabal. Either it's learned from the, somehow from the, from the word She'era, which means wife, somehow it means he inherits his wife, or from Yarash Osa, he inherits her, which means his wife, or from the idea of Hasabas Nachla, the fact that the Torah in, later in the Chumash and elsewhere in, in Tanakh, the Torah implies that Nachla can pass away from a Shevet, that happens by marrying it from intermarrying between Shvatim and the husband inheriting her. And the fourth Drasha, either on a Darais or a drabanan level, is Rebut of Drasha that says that it's a Kalvachomer from Yerusha Sain. Now there is a major machlokus, as we mentioned before, whether Yerusha Sabal is Darais or Drabban. Again, because everyone agrees he's Yarishur, but it's not clear that it's Darais. Again, because there's no really clear source in the Torah for Yerusha Sabal, there's actually a big machlokus about it. There's a Sugi in Ksuvos, the Gemara goes on at some length, bringing different opinions about whether Yusha Sabal is Daraisa or not. There are certain technical nafkaminas about whether it's Daraisa or not. And the halachal it's as we showed them how we paskin. Rambam seems to paskin in several places that it is drabanan. Rambam calls it Divrei Sofrim, even though sometimes the Mepharshim explain, Rambam uses the phrase Divrei Sofrim to mean even Dinim Daraisa. They're not explicit in the Torah, but in this case, it seems Rambam holds this drabanan. Ravid disagrees. Ravid Paskin's daraisa. So it's actually Machlocus We shown him whether it's daraisa or drabanan. Again, in practice, that machlokus doesn't have huge ramifications. Either way, he's yerisher. That's unanimous. That's universally accepted. Whether it's daraisa or drabanan. Now we mentioned earlier in the context of Rebuta ben b'Maseira that, a, that a, a, a son or a daughter, for that matter, inherits his mother. The halacha does not work again in the reverse direction. A mother does not inherit her children. Even if she's the closest blood relative, the, the, on the father's side, the, peop, the father's dead and there's no children and so on. A mother never inherits her children. The, that's also in the first mission of Yesh Neuchel. The mission of, of Yesh the, the, the way it sets up the rules of Yerusha, it, the mission focuses on symmetry and asymmetry. It says, Yesh Umanchilin. there are some pairs of relatives whose inheritance works both ways. There are, certain, there are certain people who stand in relationships such that one inherits the other, the, the other does not uh, inherit the first. So, in some cases, it's the reverse, which is basically the same relatives uh, looked at from the other perspective. Basically, the Nochlin, Velo Manchilin, Manchilin, are Nochlin are certain pairs, people in asymmetrical relationships where one inherits the other, but not the other way around. And certain cases of low notes and of low manchil and certain relatives don't inherit each other at all. So as an example of the, the asymmetrical relationships that one is Yorish another, but the other is not Yorish the first, one example we've already seen, that is husband and wife. Husband inherits wife, wife does not inherit husband. Um, the other example is mother, mother and child. child, son inherits mother, Mother does not inherit, mother does not inherit her child, never. Not, not just is she not first in line, mother never inherits her child. The way the mission Yesh Nochlin says, it says that an example of Ha'ishas a man being Yerusha's mother, a man being Yerusha's wife, those are examples of Nochlin V'lo Yerusha passes from a wife to a husband, from a mother to a son, but not the reverse. And vice versa as well, Ha'ishas Ha'ishas Baila, a mother vis-a-vis her children, a, mo- a, a wife vis-a-vis her husband. Those are examples of machin of They La they, uh, they bequeath Yerusha, but they don't inherit Yerusha. So that's the same halacha expressed uh, from both directions. So that is also a halacha psuka. A son inherits his mother. Mother does not inherit her son. There is a uh, baffling Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra on Rus, Megillus Rus. So in the fourth parak of Rus, we have the story of how Boaz eventually marries Rus. In the run-up to that story, so Rus asks Boaz to take care of her situation. So Boaz says, I'm the Goel, but there's a closer Goel. We, we first, uh, someone else has the, right of, the, has the right of first refusal. We have to go to the closer Goel, who may have been named Cloni Almoni, may have been named Tov. To someone else who is closer than me, we have to ask him first. So they asked the Goel, will you, uh, will you buy this field? Will you redeem this field of Naamis and Rus? So he said, sure. So Boaz told him, wait a second, there's a package deal. Beom Sadem Yad Naomi when you buy this field from Naomi and Rus. So so uh, also Kanisa, you're also going to that um, you're gonna buy this field. But also, he explained, you're going to have to marry Rus', and he said, I won't do that, I'm afraid of my, I'm afraid of my lineage, so, so he left, uh, and then Boaz married Rus' and bought the field. So what was this field? Who owned this field? What was the transaction? There's a tremendous amount of discussion in the Akronim of 500 years ago, trying to untangle what this field was, who was buying it, what was the gula or the kenyan going on here, very, very unclear. But what, what, one of the key, what, we're not going to get into the different explanations of what the, the finances, what transaction was being done here exactly, but one basic question the mafarshim ask is, who owned this field? It implies that the field had belonged to the, the family of Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion, but it says they were buying the field from Nami and from Rus. So if it, was, if it was part of the family estate of the, of the men of, uh, of Elimelech and his sons, Machlon and Kilion, then where did Rus and Nami fit into this picture here? If it was his field, why did they have any say in the matter? So this question, again, is discussed in detail at length by many of the Akronim, but it was also touched on by the Rishonim. Ibn Ezra, commenting on where did Nami and Rus fit into this picture, he says, The Isha has a claim against the estate of her husband, her dead husband, of Ksuva. That's, That's straightforward enough, unexceptional, unexceptionable. Also, he says, Gam Yeresha Sanisha. A mother inherits whatever's left. So, presumably, means that uh, Naomi, the mother of the two dead men, Nachlon and Kilion, inherited their property. This is an incredible thing to say. This is every Barbe Rav, anyone who's learned Gemara, Halacha, knows this is not the case. A mother does not inherit a son. No way, no how, under no circumstances does a mother ever inherit a son. So I don't know what to do with this. As Kiyaduah, the Benezra, was frequently challenged and criticized by some of the more traditional Mufarshim for deviating from Chazal. On the other hand, people point out that Benezra's deviations from Chazal are mostly in matters of agoda and Parshanus. He often explains circum differently, he rejects certain midrashim, but in Halacha he tends to be very faithful to Chazal. And he often criticizes the Karites for rejecting the authority of Chazal. By and large, the Benezra is is, is very, uh, is, is insistent that, that we follow Chazal on matters of halacha, just on, on, on Pirush HaTorah, Pirush HaMikra, he says, we can have our own explanations. Chazal sometimes, uh, were involved in drush and not pshat, he says, but halacha, Ibn Ezra rarely deviates from chazal. This is just such a stark and uh, puzzling example of, uh, of a deviation from, from halacha. A mother inherits. I, I, I haven't seen anyone, I'm sure somebody must discuss this, when I was uh, looking online for this, uh, for this quote of Ibn Ezra, Gam ha'im yereshes so I found a number of hits to commentaries of the Ibn Ezra, various places, uh, various websites that had Ibn Ezra's commentary, and the only other substantive discussion of this Ibn Ezra was to, uh, was to a blog post I wrote about it about 10 years ago, so I'm sure that somebody must have written about it, but I haven't been able to track anything down. A very, very baffling comment of Ibn Ezra. So these are the basic laws of Yerusha of the Torah, as we've seen, there are fundamentally three asymmetries, three cases, three invidious distinctions between men and women. First, we have spousal inheritance. The male spouse, the husband inherits. The female spouse, female spouse, the non-inherit male spouse. The second has to do with parents. A, a, uh, a father inherits his children if the children have no children of their own. A mother does not inherit her children. And the third is the one of B'noz Tzalafchot, where a son and daughter both inherit, but a son has precedence. Even though B'noz were correct that they deserve to inherit if there are no sons, but even they knew, they took for granted, as Chazal pointed out, that they are second in line, that they do not inherit in the case where there are sons. These are three examples in Yerusha where the men and women are not treated equally. Radical egalitarianism is not the doctrine of the Torah. And that takes us to a famous and far-reaching tshuva of the Rashba. The Rashba was asked about a community in the provincial town, uh, provincial city of Perpignan. The custom there was, as reported to the Rashba, the custom there was that even though under Jewish law a a husband inherits his wife, the custom there was that under Gentile law, under non-Jewish law, the, the, the husband did not inherit his wife, and the Jews there apparently followed the Gentile custom and did not g- did not give the the estate of a married woman to her husband. So, in the case of the, the, the Rashbam was asked about the following case: a, a man Ruvain had a daughter Leah. Leah married a uh, Leah married Shimon. The man, the father, Ruvain, gave his daughter a, a dunya, a dowry which was the property of the couple. Then Leia died. They actually had a child. Leia and her, and her husband Shimon had one child, a daughter. Then the daughter died as well, leaving no issue apparently. And now the question was, who gets the Nada? So under Dintura, it's very straightforward. Under Dintura, as soon as Leia died, she's inherited by her husband. Her husband is Yerusha. Her husband actually is first in line, ahead of even her children. So under Dintura, the case is open and shut. Even though the the Nadin is considered the woman's property, throughout the marriage it's considered the woman's property, it's only on temporary loan to her husband, so if they get divorced, the Nadin reverts to her. Nevertheless, or if he dies, if he dies, the Nadin reverts to her. If If he divorces her, the Nadin reverts to her. If he dies first, the Nadin reverts to her. But if she dies first, then he inherits the Nadin, just like he inherits all her property, he inherits her dowry. So under Torah law, this is a black and white, straightforward halacha, that Shimon, the widower, the husband of Leah, inherits the, all, the, all the property, including the Nada. But Reuven said, the father said, no, in here in Perpinyan, the minhag is, the custom is, we do not follow Jewish law, we follow Gentile law, we follow Dine Hagayim. Why do we do that? The argument is minhag. He says, a, a person has the right to arrange his financial affairs wherever he wants, and over here, E- everyone knows that there is a well-established custom that we follow in this area of the laws of the Gayim. anyone who marries is kilu even though there was no explicit stipulation there's an implicit stipulation when you marry in a community in which there is a prevailing standard custom, you marry under that assumption and therefore the husband should not be yarish because we don't follow that halacha her. what about the question of the, the daughter inheriting so even if the husband did not inherit, when Leah died, her daughter should have inherited her, under Torah law, and when she died, her property should pass back to her father, because the father is Yorish not a mother. So again, the father should win. So there they say it again, that, we, that the law says, not like that, we should defer to the law, even though this is not a question of ready. this is not a question of a contractual arrangement like marriage, nevertheless, we should follow We should follow the law, the law apparently in such situations Actually said that the Nadan reverted back to the father. So that's what the father argued. I don't want to hear about Yerusha Sabal because our Minog is we don't follow that. I don't want to hear about Yerusha Sa'av, we don't because Din Malchusadina. I want to follow what the law would be, and the law would say that I am entitled to the dowry that I gave my daughter. Says the Rashba. He begins by addressing the first part of the father's claim that the Minog here is to ignore Yerusha Sabal. And Kulhan Nose, anyone who gets married, I'll dasa minugunose. He's marrying Eldas the Minhag. When you got married in the community that has these norms, you are accepting these norms. So you, you the husband, when you married her, you accepted that you would not be Yerusha, and therefore you forfeit any claim for the Yerusha. Says the Rashba. In general, you're right. In general, this is one of the, this is the fundamental principle of Dine Mamunas, Kol Tanaisha You can stipulate whatever you want with regard to your financial arrangements. As long as both parties enter into an agreement willingly, they can make up whatever they want. Marriage is a contractual arrangement. Parties can certainly make up whatever terms they want to a marriage. Says the Rashba, that's all true. So, basically, you're right. But in this case, you're wrong, he says. You, you can have any kind of minhag you want, except the minhag which is designed to ape and imitate the gayim. He says, if you do this because it's minhage gayim, that is usr. You're not allowed to do that. You're being mechakes a gayim, you're imitating the gayim. That's what the Torah said. The Torah said, L'fneim v'lo l'fnei The, <Torah said, laughs> the Rashba is saying a tremendous chedasher. The drush of L'fneim <laughs> v'lo that is the drash of the famous Easter of our coast. Jews are prohibited from adjudicating disputes in non-Jewish court. mishpatim <laughs> chazal disagreements between Jews must be adjudicated and based in l'fnei <laughs> before Jews. V'lo l'fnei g'ayim, our coast. You're not allowed Jews are prohibited a severe prohibition against adjudicating cases in non-Jewish courts, even if it's, they both agree to do that, can't do that. And the Rashba assumes that the same thing applies to even going to Jewish court, but to but to but to attempt to attempt to to, uh, to follow a non-Jewish minhag, a non-Jewish law, that is unacceptable. The Rashba wax is quite eloquent about this. Shlohi <laughs> The Torah does not allow the nation that is its inheritance. Kind of a pun. We're talking about inheritance. The Jewish people are the inheritance of Hashem. We call ourselves uh, the Nachla of Hashem. Al the Torah doesn't, doesn't give us free will to do whatever we want. that we should honor and uh, respect the law, the laws of the non-Jews. V'dinehem, and so on and so on. He says al We the Rashba says we are we are flabbergasted. He says makom Hamishbat torah. Perpenyan is a city that has Torah to the Yisra and Das. How can they tolerate such a thing? A minhag to, 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 for such a, pro, a prohibited minhag? Um, what will a person profit if he takes money against the Torah? To follow the ways of the Goym? The says for Jews to accept upon themselves. The, the laws of the non-Jews. So the Rashba is telling us a principle, although in general we say, you can stipulate whatever you want, but if you, but, if, but, it, but one thing you're not allowed to stipulate, to stipulate that you want to accept non-Jewish law, that is unacceptable, it's a rejection of the Torah, it's a violation of the principle of Lufneim, L'Lufnei gayim. he says, and absolutely not. The Rashba goes on, what about the question of Yerusha, uh, of Yerusha Sa'av, Din The Rashba also argues at some length that we don't have din melchusadina in such a case. You're ochre okay, the whole Torah if you say that he says. If you simply want to wholesale replace Torah law of din melchusadina, he makes a similar argument. Who needs sifrei kodesh? Why don't we can just close all the gemaras and close the shulchan aruch and just go to law school and study secular law. He says chalila. He says chas v'shalom. Lotia kazois Israel, Chas The Torah would gird itself with sackcloth if you do such a thing. He says. So the Rashba completely rejects both arguments of the, of the father. He says, to say that by getting married in a place that has the minag to follow non-Jewish law and to dispense with Yerusha Sabal, not acceptable. To say that Dinah says that the father inherits rather than the, that, that the father of the daughter doesn't inherit, instead it goes back to the woman's father, also not acceptable, he says, absolutely not. So the problem that have is reconciling this Rashba the Rashba says, absolutely, you're not allowed to accept non-Jewish non-Jewish laws and customs upon yourself. The problem is that there are many other cases, many other areas in Halacha, where we seem to say that it's fine, that you're, that you're allowed to accept, as long, certainly as long as you go to Bastion, you're allowed to accept upon yourself contractually the laws of the non-Jews, the customs of the non-Jews. What, what is the principle? Can we, do we really take this Rashba at face value, that, you're, that, that, that a person is not allowed to accept any... Uh, any uh, non-Jewish law as a, as a custom, as a contractual stipulation? Is that really true? Is it really true that you're not allowed to accept any non-Jewish law upon yourself? As Rezal Melechemi Goldberg points out, we'll discuss his remarks in more detail soon, we do this all the time. If we say we have a 9 to 5 workday, that's not what the Gemara says. The Gemara says workday is from dawn to dusk. Uh, is that, if, we, if we decide that in America they have some nice ideas about workdays... They go from 9 to 5. Is that called being miyaker, the Goyim? Is that called uh, rejecting the Torah by, uh, by adopting non-Jewish customs? Two weeks vacation. A Jewish business wants to give its workers a couple of weeks vacation. That's a Goyish idea. The Gemara doesn't talk about vacation. There's no notion of vacation in the Gemara. Is that uh, you're adopting American norms? Is, is, that, is that a problem of being miyaker, Shem HaGoyim? Of course not. So what does the Rashba mean? So, so where do you draw the line? What is unacceptable about following the inheritance laws of the gayim How is that so different from all kinds of other commercial customs where we routinely adopt the uh, commercial norms, business norms of the non-Jews? So we find a very interesting discussion about this in, published in the journal Yeshurun a number of years ago. It was a discussion between Rabbi Tzvi Gartner and Rabbi Zalman Nechemia Goldberg. Zalman Nechemia Goldberg Colonel Lavraka was a was, was perhaps the outstanding the outstanding expert on Chesh and Mishpat and Evan Ezer in the last generation. He was widely, almost universally, regarded as a leading expert on on the on Jewish civil law and family law, particularly as applied to the modern uh, modern era. Bertzvi Gartner is also a uh, tremendously distinguished Talmud Chacham, an expert on Evan Ezer, American born, one of the editors of the Otzer Aposkin. And he had a very interesting correspondence published in Yeshurun with Ravzalman Nechemi Goldberg. The question had to do with prenuptial agreements. Ravzalman Nechemi Goldberg is, uh, was the architect of the, the prenup that is, popu- that, is, that is quite popular in the modern Orthodox world, the prenup that is uh, heavily endorsed by the Basement of America, by the, the YU Rabbinate, and so on. He was, he was the, Ravzalman Nechemi Goldberg was the was the main architect, uh, the main halachic architect, along with very Mordecai Willig of New York, of the, of, the, of the Basin of America prenup. Now, much of the discussion about this prenup revolves around the question of Gittin, the, is the Many other types of prenups and other instruments that are meant to induce the husband to give a get in certain circumstances can actually cause, uh, can actually uh, impugn the legitimacy of the get, and, and, and there's tremendous controversy in the laws of Gitten about the validity of these prenups, and therefore much of the discussion about the Basin of America prenup had to do with uh, Helche's Gittin. But We're concerned here with a different question. The there, There's a, there's a clause in the, in the in, it, it, I think it's an optional clause in the current version, there's a clause in the Basin of America prenup that says that the That so, some of it is uh, again unobjectionable that if they have any disagreement, they agree to go to Bastin, which is a fine and wonderful thing. But there is also a a, a point which is again optional that says that the Bastin shall decide disagreements between husband and wife with using frameworks of things like equitable distribution, the way the courts decide who gets what after upon a divorce. The Bastin, instead of applying traditional halacha and choshen mishpah, Ivan Azer will use the framework of equitable distribution. What does that mean? Al halacha, a couple gets divorced, so the man basically gets everything except, and he pays aksuva, and anything that was his money, anything that was his earnings during the marriage, if she earned money and she kept her earnings she, and she did her own maintenance, she can keep that. But in a traditional marriage where the husband was the breadwinner and the husband made lots of money, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates get divorced, so Bill Gates keeps basically everything because it's, uh, it's all his. And he pays Melinda whatever her ksuvah was, whatever, whatever agreements they had. They signed a separation agreement, apparently, with a, whatever they agreed to there. But basically, he can be worth $100 billion. He divorces her. He keeps basically everything that he earned. And he gives her whatever he agreed to pay in the or any other documents. That's what halacha says. The, under modern frameworks of community property or equitable distribution, the, the, the dominant paradigm today is equitable distribution, so the way it works is that a court will say, well, she contributed to the marriage, and, uh, and, and he has a lot of money, and she deserves it, and he behaved badly during the marriage, or, and she needs it, and so on. And the court will make some kind of equitable, equity means fairness, fairness, the court will make some kind of general, uh, general provision for how to divide the assets, based on notions of equity, will not simply say, it's all his, so you can get uh, your Ksuva and, and, and take a hike. The court, So the Ravzalman Nechemia proposed this as well. He said, the reason women, Ravzalman Nechemia was very disturbed that women were not going to Bastion, they were going to court. Ravzalman Nechemia very much, well, that's a terrible problem. We said, going to our coast is a, uh, is a, is a terrible problem. So Ravzalman Nechemia Razal uh, Menachemya wanted them to go to Bastin, wanted them to agree to go to Bastin. so he said, why do they want to go to court, the women? Because they know that in court they'll get a whole lot more money than they'll get in Bastin. So we have a, we have a good solution, Rezal Menachemya says. Let the husband just say, in the prenup, that he's, that, that he's willing to grant her on divorce much more than the ksuva. He's willing to grant her an amount of money, and a, a, a share of his assets that are similar to what she would get in court. If so, then she no longer has any incentive to go to court, because even Bastin will respect such a clause. And therefore, we can, uh, we can improve things immeasurably by removing the inducement that women have to go to court. Instead, they'll go to Basin. And this is indeed a clause that the Basin of America still includes as an option that you can, you can agree that the Basin will, will handle the division of assets. And they'll do so, according to one version at least, according to one version, they'll do so based not, not necessarily strictly on halakhic rules, but, but using the framework of equitable distribution. So Rizal Malachemiah seemed to think that was a great idea. So Rizal Gartner raised an objection. He said, how can you do that? He said. The Rashba says, very respectfully, Rizal Malachemiah is, uh, is a revered authority. Rizal Gartner raised the question. He said, how can you do that? He said, the Rashba tells us, yes, a person can make any arrangement he wants uh, in a contractual situation, but you have to, but not if you want to copy of the Gaium, he says. You can't adopt Gaiish norms over the Torah norms. Equitable distribution is very much a non-Jewish norm. It's not what the Torah says. So how do you have the right, he says, how do you have the right to say I, that I, the husband, I agree that instead of following the Torah, we will follow we will follow Western norms of equitable distribution? That's exactly what the Rashba was talking about. The husband that the minog was that that the husbands and wives were agreeing implicitly. That instead of following the Torah's law of Yerushas Abal, instead we will follow the non Jewish law that the Baal is not Yerush. You can't do that, the Rashba says. So, how can you do this? That was the question that Rav that Rabbi Gartner, put to, to Rav Zalman So, Rav Zalman explained that he does not think that is a cogent objection. He says the Rashba has to be understood in a much more limited way. He makes the point we said earlier. He says, Everything we do is like that. We have a nine-to-five workday. We have a uh, two-weeks vacation. Those are all Western norms. Those are not Torah norms, he says. Nothing wrong with that. The Rashba wouldn't have any problem with that. But he didn't, didn't all the time, he says. But they didn't uh, all the time resolve employment questions by looking to the norms of general society. I was once in Bnei Brak. I was, observing, I was observing some of the proceedings of, uh, of a very distinguished Diane. And he was doing kind of informal, uh, informal pshara, informal dispute resolution. So I watched him for a couple of hours or so, and I watched him handle case after case. The only time I, I as I recall, the only time I saw him pull a sefer off a shelf was he once had a question involving, one of the questions involved, I think, a pension or severance pay. So he pulled off the shelf the sefer Mishpat Poland, a modern classic uh, anthology of the laws of employment. And he looked to the back of the sefer, where the author includes a, a synopsis of modern Israeli labor law. He says since the rule is that when it comes to contractual issues, any, the, the, the framework of prevailing law and custom is incorporated into Torah law by the principles of Minog and so on, therefore it's important for a Dian to, to have access to the modern Israeli labor law. So here's a summary for, uh, for Dayanim of Israeli labor law. So that was what, that was what he looked on a, at a safer for to check the law. Uh, how the law applied. And that's what Rezal Melechemi says, that that's the minhag of not they, they routinely answer questions involving labor disputes by looking to the norms of labor law, even though, those, even though those come from non-Jewish society. That doesn't violate the Rashba, he says. So the Rashba has to be understood in a much more limited fashion. Why was the Rashba so upset about a minhag to ignore Yerusha? So Rezal Melechemi makes a distinction that I don't fully understand, but he says the Rashba's problem is only if your stipulation is against, it, it, it directly contradicts Din Torah. Din Torah says husband is Yerish, you say husband is not Yerish. That's considered rejecting and contradicting Din Torah, that's not acceptable. But if the law says that the workday is from 9 to 5, that's not considered a rejection of Dintara. Torah. Torah allows you to set whatever workday you want, there's no obligation to set a, a, dusk, a dawn to dusk workday, even though that was the default in the time of the Gemara, the, the, that, that's not a halacha that, that, that the Torah is kovei, you have to have a workday like that. What, the, the halacha is there's no such thing as automatic paid vacation. The Torah has no objection to paid vacation, it's just the Torah doesn't grant you any paid vacation. So if Zalman Heimia says things like that, that's not called going against in Torah. However, rejecting Yerusha, if Zalman Heimia says, that's called going against in Torah. Therefore, if Zalman Heimia says, when a husband gets married and he says, my wife, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very generous. Instead of simply granting you the k'suva of 200 zuz, 100 sekukim, whatever it is, instead of granting you that, I'm going to give you much, much more money. I'm going to give you a major share of my estate upon divorce, if, if we ever get divorced, a share based on the principles of equitable distribution. Osman can do that. He can give, Just like he can give her a large k'suva, he says, he can give her any other arrangement he wants as well. Why can't he make a Maman Rav says, Why can't uh, why can he do that? So he says, there's nothing wrong with a husband deciding that he's he's not accepting secular law and rejecting Torah law. He's simply saying that I grant my wife voluntarily a larger share of my estate than she'd ordinarily be entitled to. Ordinarily, Bill Gates takes his hundred billion, gives Melinda a and keeps the rest. Bill Gates is going to be generous, and he's going to say, I'll give her a share of my hundred billion, an equitable share. All right, very generous he's being. Generous to the tune of billions of dollars, maybe. But the, the point is, that the, by doing that, you're not rejecting Dintar and accepting secular law. You're simply saying that the husband can choose to give his wife upon divorce any portion of his estate. He's choosing to make a more generous division of his estate. That is not called accepting the laws of the Gaim. Rav Zalman says that, he says that, so the truth is, he says, it would be better. It would be ideal if we wouldn't say that we're adopting the the secular framework. We should we should figure out what the rights are and write those rights in instead of saying that the assets will be divided under the laws of the state of Maryland. And indeed, it's better to write that the, the assets with the, uh, that she'll be entitled to a share of the assets based on principles of equity and so on without directly referencing secular law. So Rizalman ben very much defended this idea. And he, he limited the Rashba to a case where you're explicitly adopting secular law and you're explicitly rejecting a halacha in the Torah, halacha of Yerusha. That's how Rav zal understands the Rashba. Rav Asher Weiss has a discussion of this as well in one of his chuvas. Rav Asher Weiss, a leading contemporary posik, he also limits the Rashba. He, he explains it a little bit differently. He says that there is, this is classic Rav Asher Weiss, classic a uh, conceptual framework that allows him to reframe and restate the halacha in accordance with what he feels is logical he says we, we have to talk about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law the halacha has lots of letters of the law and then there are the spirits of the law the underlying principles that motivate the halacha he says when, when do we say din molchus he, he's focusing more on din molchus and not minag but he says when do we say din molchus when do we not say din molchus a very very complex and intricate topic Rav, Rav Usher, why he has a lot to say about it. But one of the distinctions he makes is, he says, a law that differs from halacha in the letter of the law, but doesn't contradict the underlying spirit of the law, that's fine. That's what we say Din Malchus Adina. The law works things out a little bit differently than we do. That's fine. The Torah is not insistent that every, that every one of its halachas is rigidly followed. If the law takes a different approach, then under principle of Din Malchus Adina, we can accept that. However, he says, if a law is based on a philosophical rejection of principles of the Torah, that is intolerable. That is completely unacceptable. How does that apply to Yerusha Sabal? How does that explain why the Rashba was so adamantly opposed to a a minhag or a law that rejected Yerusha Sabal? So here Wai says something very interesting. I'm not convinced of the historicity of this. It sounds a little bit anachronistic, but this is what Wai says. He says, when the law decided that a husband does not inherit his wife, what was the philosophy behind that law? Says Rav Asher, the philosophy was egalitarianism. Since a wife does not inherit her husband, it's not fair. zello fair. It can't be that a husband inherits his wife if she doesn't inherit him. We mentioned halacha has these basic asymmetries between men and women, between spouses. But the law, Rav Asher says, couldn't stomach that. The law said men and women have to be... Can't be unequal, they have to be equal, and therefore if she doesn't inherit him, he can't inherit her as well, and at all at all either. Says of Usher, that is something that is fundamentally inimical to the philosophy of the Torah. The Torah says men and women are not equal, the husband does inherit, wife does not inherit, the Torah rejects that kind of absolutist egalitarianism. Says of Usher, such a law is in fundamental opposition to the spirit of the law, to the principles of the Torah, not just to the letter of the law. And that's why the Rashba was who have fundamentally rejected the notion of a, of, 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 a law, of accepting a law that would reject Yerusha Sabal. Again, as a matter of history, this seems a little dubious to me. It seems a little dubious that medieval Christians, who were, who were not known for their enlightened and modern egalitarian feminist views, were rejecting Yerusha Sabal based on egalitarian principles. The Rashba, as far as I see, I see does not mention anything about such a rationale for the law. I don't know where Rav Asher got this idea from, but the, the overall idea of Rav Asher... How well it fits into the Rashba side, the overall idea of the of the of the of the Rav Asher is that a law that is fundamentally opposed to principles of the Torah is unacceptable. Where a law, whereas a law that simply differs from the Torah in details, can sometimes be accepted under the principle Din Adina. Rav Usher also has another principle which he says we can derive from this Rashba, that he says Din Adina can only apply. To a specific law, if you want to adopt a specific provision of the law under Din Machusadina, you can do that. But to simply apply wholesale, systematically, to say that our our relations, our our uh, our society shall be governed by secular law because of Din Machusadina, he says that he says is completely unacceptable. As the Rashba says, we can that will that would nullify the whole Choshen Mishpat. We can just get rid of it. That's why the Rashba is so upset, he says, that uh, if you can't go to a secular court, you certainly, certainly can't just dispose of the Torah and have a choice of law provision that you accept secular law. So so again, I don't know how this works in practice you're allowed to, if a basin is trying to decide when to apply Dino Chusadina on any individual law, they can apply it, but when it comes to apply all the laws together, they can't apply it. I mean, any dintara is going to involve typically one specific law. So I'm not sure what Rav Asher means here. When do we say, I'm just applying al Chusadina to a specific law, and when do we say, okay, well, you did that yesterday, and you did that today, and you did that in this context, you did that in that context. By, by the time you're done, you'll have applied it to everything. So I don't know exactly where you draw the line, but the basic point is, this, this does emerge from the Rashba, and even according to the various interpretations of the Rashba, that choice of law provisions can be problematic. If you are, certainly if you're rejecting Dintar and replacing it by a different system of law, that potentially is problematic. On the other hand, as Rizal Manchemy points out, we do find many areas in which the people structure their business relationships, structure their contractual relationships... Uh, They model them after secular norms, after the norms of general society. We do this all the time in employment law and so on, partnership law, and there's no problem. But they did, in Zalman Nechemia notes, frequently interpret uh, contractual relationships based on secular law. So so, so, so that is still a very tricky and very difficult to answer question sometimes. When do we apply Zalman Nechemia's point that simply arranging your affairs in a pattern modeled after secular society is fine – and when do we invoke the Rashba's rule that it's uh, absolutely austere and a tremendous chil Hashem and a rejection of the Torah to simply say, I don't want my affairs to be governed by Torah, I want them to be governed by secular law. This is a, uh, this is a uh, major, major, com- complex topic with immense practical ramification. And uh, further discussion, further consideration of, the, of this topic is warranted.